All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. Happy New Year. You guys doing all right? Yeah. Good, good. Good to see you faces. Hopefully you had a great New Year. Um, got any resolutions, anyone? Got any good resolutions? No? Like, we don't, we don't need that. We're good. <laughs> I like, to, I like to throw in some uh, different resolutions. As many of you know and have asked me about, my resolution for last year was to perform a 10-second handstand. I was never planning on doing this on stage, and I'm still not. So, um, <laughs> because that's really hard for a six-foot-five guy to do, apparently, in, at 48 years old. But I'm still trying, so you can keep asking, see if I ever, ever get there. So uh, I'm going to press on with that, and, and I've got some other ones. This year, uh, one of the ones that I, I've started off with is to read this book, Les Miserables. Um, I've never read this book, but I've been intrigued with the story since about 1997. In 1997, I was a student uh, studying abroad in the Czech Republic in Prague, and one day my friends came to me and they said, hey, uh, they're filming, a, they're, they're doing a movie down in the, the, the part of town that's called, uh, it was referred to as the Paris of the East. Um, and Liam Neeson and Claire Danes are down there, and, and there's an Irish pub, Liam being an Irish guy, there's an Irish pub right there where they're filming, and he goes there every night. Well, let's go, let's go meet Liam. And I was like, okay, let's do this. And so we went down there, and uh, Claire was on the street, and my, my friends were trying to hit on her, and uh, I went into the, the pub, and, um, and sure enough, Liam Neeson was there, and having a good time, and kind of entertaining, meeting everybody, buying a, a round of Guinness for the whole place. Like, it, it, was, a, it was a party. And I'm like, oh, this is pretty interesting. And, and so I had no idea, like, the, the title alone, Les Miserables, sounds miserable to me, and I had no interest in that movie. Uh, but uh, because I had kind of been on the set and, and, and met Liam at that time, and um, this was before the age of cell phones, so there's no selfie there to prove that I was there, but you're just going to have to take my word for it. Uh, I decided in 1998 uh, to, to watch the movie when it came out. And... Uh, as, as I watched that movie, I realized this is one of the best depictions of the gospel in, in theatrical form that I've ever seen. Like, in terms of uh, wrestling with the idea of grace and, and law. It's a, this story. I got a picture of uh, the actor. There's Liam, and you got Claire Danes here, and you got Yavir, who's the inspector. Uh, it's this story that centers around, uh, um, what's his name? Help me out. What's, what's the main character? Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean. Thank you. See, I, Jean Valjean. Uh, that centers around Jean Valjean, uh, a peasant who is just trying to, like, early 19th century France, trying to provide for his starving sister and her family. He steals some bread. He's caught and convicted and sentenced to prison. He's sentenced to five years of hard prison labor for stealing bread. Uh, but because he tries to con- repeatedly try to escape, he serves about 19 years in prison. And, and so... In these 19 years, he just becomes this hardened, uh, the just kind of shriveled soul kind of a guy, like just angry. And he finally gets out, but he's a convicted criminal that has to travel with a, a yellow convicted criminal passport. And he's got to get to a, a certain place by a certain time or else he's going to go back to prison. And he's got no money and no one wants to take him in. And so he, he ends up having to like sleep on the streets uh, as he's making his way through the villages in, in France. And eventually he comes to this village. He's sleeping on the street and there's a, a bishop there. His name is Muriel. Muriel uh, finds him and, and, and welcomes him in. And he says, I'm a criminal. He says, it doesn't matter. Come, come into the, the monastery. Uh, we'll feed you. And he, and he eats just like a, an animal. And, and uh, they're sitting there eating. And, and uh, 
And he knows he's eating with very nice silverware. And, and he gives him a, a warm bed to sleep in. And uh, in the middle of the night, uh, Jean Valjean, his, his darker inner nature that has been developed over the last 19 years in prison, kind of comes out and he, he gets up and he goes into the dining room where they had eaten and he's, he begins to steal all the silverware. And Mariel, the bishop, hears this. He comes out and uh, kind of confronts Jean Valjean and uh, he, he strikes him, knocks him out and, and takes off, steals the silverware. Uh, in the movie, it's great. The next scene cuts to uh, the bishop and, and one of the nuns in the, in the garden, and, and she's crying. And he's like, we'll eat with wooden spoons. Like, it's okay. Uh, and then the, uh, the, the, the police have rounded up Jean Valjean, and they've brought him in. And they said, this convicted criminal had all this silver, silverware. And he says that you gave it to him. And the bishop looks at very sternly at, at Jean Valjean and says, I'm very angry, angry with you, Jean Valjean. Why didn't you take the candlesticks like I told you to as well? And the, the police are like, what? No. We're like, really? And they're like, okay. And so they go on and it's just John Valjean and the, the bishop. And he says, hey, with this, your, your life has been purchased for God. Now go make something of your life. Well, he wrestles with that. The movie moves on pretty quickly, but I know the book's, I mean, I know the book's going to really wrestle with it. Um, <laughs> But he wrestles with that and doesn't quite come around like this amazing radical grace that has flooded into his life. And he, he, he actually goes and commits another crime. And, and as he commits the crime, he, uh, he, he's just so struck by what, the grace that he received. He, he tries to make amends and he tries to make it right, but it's too late. There's a warrant out for his arrest. And so he's got to go in, in hiding and undercover. And, and then he, that's how he spends the rest of his life, just dealing with the transforming grace that he received. And at the same time, uh, the, the person here on your left, Yavert, is this inspector who uh, recognizes him at some point and just is consumed with law. He, he is consumed with uh, tracking down Jean Valjean and, and bringing him to justice for his whole life. And, and this is, there's this tension of, what do you do when radical grace comes on the scene? It's either going to reorient your life to something amazing or it's going to disorient you. And as, as we look at our passage, we've been going through uh, the Gospel of Luke together. Uh, if you're just joining us for the new year, uh, this passage has both of these things. that, that The two effects of grace, that, that, that when, when we encounter the true radical grace of God, it's either going to reorient our, our whole lives, like totally radically transform us, or it's going to disorient us. Maybe even make us angry. Like what it doesn't do, if you've really encountered it, is just leave us indifferent. Either it's going to transform us or reorient us or disorient us. And in Luke chapter 5, both of these reactions to the radical grace of God are present. And so Luke wants us to wrestle with God's grace. What do we do with it in our own lives, in other people's lives? And then Luke is going to show us, or rather through Luke, Jesus is going to show us how to be a kind of people that position ourselves to be recipients of the radical grace of God. So if you have your Bible, we're in Matthew chapter 5. We'll pick it up in verse 27. Listen carefully. This is God's word. It starts off this way. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. So, so Jesus goes 
out. This, he's still in Capernaum, north uh, of, the, of Galilee. He, he goes out and, and it says he sees a tax collector. Now, I, I've said this quite often whenever we come across tax collectors. It's hard for us to understand how despicable, how much a, a piece of garbage Levi is. Like they, the level of treason, the level of, uh, 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 of kind of betrayal of community and family. That, that le- like the only people that that uh, first century uh, Jewish person would hate more than the, the pig-eating, pagan, Roman, uh, idol-worshipping, uh, oppressing government is the tax collectors. And, and, and the reason why is because the tax collectors would have bid for the right to Rome to tax their own people, to make Rome and themselves rich. So, so, so you've got Levi here who's already wealthy and has, bid, has become, come in as the highest bidder to collect taxes from his own community, his own people, to give money to Rome that's going to continue to oppress them and to make himself rich. He's garbage. He's trash. Again, I don't know that we can understand how, how much of a betrayal this, this person represents. Like, like how much hatred the community would have. Like the rabbinical teaching of the day said, uh, you could lie to a tax collector with impunity. Like, it's okay to lie to tax collectors. Those are the only people you can lie to. You can lie to them. Um, if a tax collector touches anything, he's unclean. They would be ethnically Jewish, but religiously they would be uh, not following at all. They'd be kicked out of the synagogue. They'd be distanced from family and community. Uh, they'd have a lot of wealth, but it'd be in isolation. I mean, they might hire some guards and some servants and all those things, but, but, but it's just this betrayal, right? Like, like the closest thing I can think of is maybe uh, Nazi informants in, in occupied France and Germany and stuff like that, uh, that, that kind of sold their own people out. Or, or that scene in, uh, maybe you've seen this, the miniseries Band of Brothers when uh, they, they come and liberate Paris and there's this celebration going on. But then it turns real dark real quick when the, they bring out the, the French prostitutes who had given themselves to the German soldiers during the course of the occupation. And they shave their heads and they spit on them and they... They beat the, the women because of, of their betrayal. And, and they're just, they just did that to, to provide for themselves. This is worse. Matthew is, Levi is, is worse here. So, so when we understand that, we see that immediately there, there's some tension in the text. And it says, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector. Now, this word saw doesn't mean he just kind of glanced at him. Uh, it, it's actually a, a very intentional word. It's theestai. It means to look intently and purposely. It's, it's as if Jesus is looking at Levi and looking past uh, who he is as a tax collector. He sees him as a person. I love this word because, and I love this, what's going on here is Jesus is very intentional of just kind of staring into Levi's soul. And and he he sees past his sin. I love that for us as well. Jesus sees past our our sin and our failure. He sees past our, our, our brokenness, our history. And he sees us as we are with people with names. He sees us as he's made us. As image bearers, he sees us as infinitely worth, with infinite worth in his eyes. See, that's how he sees Levi. No one else in the community sees him that way. Levi himself probably doesn't even see himself that way. But it says, Jesus saw the tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. And Jesus says, follow me. 
follow me. It's an invitation. Enter into the radical grace of God, Levi. And now this is probably not the very first time Levi has encountered Jesus. Uh, Jesus has already now grown his ministry quite a bit. There's been massive crowds around this region that, that have followed him. He's taught from the, the boat. He's, he's taught in houses where crowds have gathered. Levi's probably been on the edge kind of listening in. And he's kind of been uh, kind of reviewing his own life. Like, I mean, I have all this wealth and I have no friends uh, or I have no community. I have no family. I, I've been ostracized. Uh, and I, I thought this would satisfy my soul, but it's not. He's miserable. Jesus sees him in his misery and he says, hey, I'm going to give you a way out, Levi. Follow me. Enter into my way. You don't have to be defined any longer about, uh, you don't have to be, your life does not have to be defined by your sin and your failure and what you've chosen to do. Now you can step on a new path, a whole new path that will lead to a whole new destination. Follow me, Jesus says to Levi. And Levi gets it. It clicks in his heart, verse 20. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. He becomes a follower of Jesus. Now, now we know uh, this Levi is also Matthew from Matthew chapter 9. He's the gospel writer, Matthew, and he, he has been transformed. Matthew means gift of God. So he's no longer going to have his life to be defined by his betrayal of his people. His life is now going to be defined by the gift of God he receives in mercy and grace in Jesus. He's Matthew. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And we know that he, he gets it. He understands the radical reorienting nature of the gospel be, immediately because we see how he responds. Look what he does. Then Levi held a great banquet. He, he throws a massive rager, a huge party for Jesus. This is a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. He, he throws this party. Now, now notice a few things that is going on here. He gets it. I, I've, been, I, I've, I've received the radical grace of God. Everything's different. This is amazing. Jesus, I want to, with my life and my resources and everything I have, I want to throw a party for you. This is the right impulse, by the way. I mean, Christians should be marked by the most joyful, explosively partying people on the planet. Like, like, we, like some of you should tell your face the gospel. <laughs> like, really? Like, this should be a mark of discipleship. If you've in, encountered the radical grace of God, this should cause uh, explosive joy to begin to rise up. And also notice his instinct. Notice his instinct. Man, I, I don't want this just for myself. I, I want this for my friends. My friends need this. Uh, one commentary I read this week says, the person who has received God's grace does not want to go to heaven alone. So he throws a party. It's like, throws a party. You guys come in. You, I'm going to have a party. It's going to be, we're going to have good food. We're going to have good drink. We're going to have good music. It, it's going it's to be hopping, right? And, and who does he throw a party for? Well, he doesn't have any respectable friends, right? He's a tax collector. All he has is other tax collectors and maybe some prostitutes and maybe some thieves, maybe some shepherds, people that have given up trying to be good and, and fit into society a long time ago. And he says, Jesus, come, come. We're going to have a party for you with all my friends. And Jesus is like, all right, sounds good. This is going to be one of the first of nine times in John's go or Luke's gospel where Jesus is going to be invited to a meal, to a party. 
First of nine times. We're going to spend a lot of time with Jesus at meals. And so Jesus goes, you can just kind of imagine the scene, all, all these kind of wild, down and out people, uh, rejected people, and, but, but there's good food, there's good music, and they're having a good time. It's a raucous crowd, and, and Jesus is just kind of working his way around the room, engaging people, maybe telling them about the offer of the radical grace of God. Matthew Levi, in his gospel, when he tells this story, he he says that the disciples were there. This had to be very uncomfortable for them. For the most part, they're at least respectable, right? They're fishermen. Um, Interestingly enough, also Matthew tells us that Simon the Zealot was also one of the disciples. Simon the Zealot is on the opposite political spectrum of of Levi the tax collector. Simon, before receiving the radical grace of Jesus, had plotted with his life to murder tax collectors. All of a sudden, he's in a party full of tax collectors. This says something about what the gospel can do uh, for the, the community of God's people. But, but Jesus is, is working the crowd and, and t- telling about the gospel. And they're, they're hearing. We, we don't know what their, their response is, but they're hearing about the, the mercy and grace that's available to God. But, but it doesn't just reorient our lives. It can disorient us. And, and this is what we see in the next verses. Verse 30 says, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to the sect complained to his disciples why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, now we've been trained by the way we read our Gospels to, we've actually been trained to be Pharisees towards the Pharisees. <laughs> Pharisees are the bad guys. They're always trying to kill the life of the party. This looks like what they're doing here. But actually, it's a good question. Why do we eat with tax collectors and sinners? To the Pharisees, there, there is some impulse in them that I think is right and good. They, they believed that, 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 that Israel's basic problem was that they, they, they were not obeying God's law. I mean, we just read about it. What is sin? They were, it is lawlessness. And God's law had set up some things for the protection of God's people. And God's law had, had talked about who you eat with, you become like. And, and therefore, to protect the Israelites from the, the pagan surrounding nations, that they couldn't just have meals with sinners. Like it's, it was in the law. And so the Pharisees ask a good question. Why? Well, they ask the disciples, why, why, does, why does Jesus and you guys eat? with tax collectors and sinners. So, see, they're, they're working out of an old paradigm. But when radical grace comes onto the scene, it disorients them. This doesn't make sense. And so they ask a good question, and then Jesus gives an answer that, that shows them w- what he's doing. He's brought something radically new to the table here. Verse 31, Jesus, even though he asked, they asked the disciples, Jesus answered them, said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is a great summary of the mission and ministry of both Jesus and the church. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but but sinners to repentance. So that must have been disorienting them to them as well. They're like, well, we we agree with that, Jesus. Sinners need to repent. And Jesus, I can imagine, he just smiles a little bit. He's like, if you only knew. 
If you only knew, if you're good with your life, if, if you think your, your performance, your, your status in society, your religious observance is, is, is enough for you, then, then you're fine. You, you'll just live your life. You won't position yourself to receive this radical grace. Jesus, you, you need to understand this. Jesus loved the Pharisees, just like he loved Levi. Three of the nine meals that he has are going to be in the homes of Pharisees. He regularly received invitations and accepted them to go into a meals with the Pharisees. And some of them will embrace the radical grace of God, but most won't. Most won't because they're just kind of satisfied with themselves. We're not sick. We're not the unrighteous. We're not the ones that need to repent. Now, Jesus knows that that's not true. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's came, he came for everybody. But if you have no sense of your need, you won't position yourself to receive it. This is, this is kind of, I mean, honestly, this is the challenge of, of the suburbs, right? Like we were having dinner with Evan last night. And he's like, well, what's it like doing ministry in Parker? I'm like, well, Jesus says, I've not come to call the, uh, call the, uh, the righteous, but sinners. The problem is we're very successful. We have our lives together on the surface. It looks pretty good. So it's hard for us to position ourselves to receive the radical grace of God when we think we have it already together. But Jesus loves Pharisees. He loves Parkerites. He loves Levi. And so he presses on. Their next question shows that they're just not understanding. See, they're they're thinking, well, well, let's read it, and then we'll see what they're thinking. It says, they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. They're like, Jesus, how in the world? So they're they're in the mindset, if we could just get the law right, if we could finally have a moral reform in this country, and do the things right, then, then God will send the Messiah and he'll restore the kingdom. This is, what this is their paradigm. That's the only thing that they can think. And they say, so Jesus, how is the Messiah going to come if we're not somber and serious about the law? And, and Jesus, the answer is going to show them, no, no, something radically new has, has happened here in the coming of Jesus. Jesus answered them, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. Jesus is is saying, hey, he's comparing it to the kingdom of God to a wedding. And back in that time, like weddings were full on ragers, right? Like a week long party of dancing and drinking and eating and and celebration uh, a week long. So Jesus says, it's as if the wedding has come. It's as if the the bridegroom is here and my disciples right now are, are with me. It would be inappropriate for them not to celebrate. It would be offensive for them to fast and be somber right now because it's a wedding time. It's a party time. So a time will come when they will fast. Like, like we, we still live in a, in a broken culture. We're still waiting for Jesus to finally, once and for all, return. There are moments in our lives where there's su- suffering and there's pain, and, and it's appropriate to, to go before God in fasting, even for us. But in this moment, for these disciples, in this moment, it's like the wedding party has arrived. And so it is entirely appropriate. Again, I would say this. Christians should be marked by their feasting, by their celebrating, by their joy, because the bridegroom has come. 
The Pharisees do not get this. They don't understand. They're, they're disoriented by the radical grace of God. And so Jesus decides to tell them a couple of parables. His first parables in the Gospel of Luke to show them that it's, this isn't Judaism 2.0. It's not that we just need to patch up the old system and finally get it right. No, this is radical and this is new. And if you don't understand that, you will never receive it. Verse 36. It says he told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. Or in Matthew's gospel, he actually says, we'll, we'll shrink and tear away from it. So both the old and the new would be destroyed. So you have the old covenant. It served uh, a purpose. It, it's the law shows us God's will and his way and, and should point us to our, our need for the new covenant, our need for God's amazing grace. He says, but if you're just trying to patch up the old system, it's not going to work. He gives them another one. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. So, so, uh, when we lived in the Czech Republic in the fall, every year, uh, the, the vineyards farmers would set up their little booths outside. So there's like a three-week period of time and they'd, they'd put out these bottles and they, it was called burchak. It's new wine. And there's this three or four-week period of time where the wine goes from grape juice to, uh, to wine. And uh, in that time, the gases are expanding. And if you go and buy this, it tastes like grape juice, but it has the alcohol content of wine. And um, which one missionary didn't know she was drinking wine and she got wasted. But um, <laughs> she, she, didn't, she came from like a tradition where they never drank anything. So that's, uh, that's too bad. But um, <laughs> if you go buy this on the roadside um, and you take it home, every day you have to release the pressure because it's expanding and growing. Or the bottle will like blow up in your kitchen or something like that. Uh, well, this is what Jesus is saying. When the, the wine is new and you pour it into new wineskin, it's going to stretch with it. But if you pour it into old wineskins that's already been stretched, it's just going to burst it. Jesus is saying something radically new has come. This isn't about trying harder and being better and doing the law finally once and for all. No, this is about reorienting yourself to the radical grace of God offered in Jesus. Well, uh, how, how do we, how do we, how do we kind of position ourselves for this? You know, how, how do we, with, with these two uh, parables of, uh, of the law and the gospel, if you just kind of continue to live under the law, you're either going to be uh, exhausted and tired and defeated, trying harder and harder to just be good boys and girls, or you're going to be puffed up and prideful as you kind of think, man, I'm doing it. Compared to everyone else, I'm doing it pretty well. Either way, you won't have received the amazing grace of God. So, So Jesus says, I've come to bring something radically new. So how does God position us? Well, one of the repeated things that we read in the Bible, and Jesus' own brother repeats it, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This, is, this whole story is about that, right? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How do you position yourself to receive the radical grace of God? It's humility. It's humility. It's just recognizing I have a need. I can't do it on my own. Jesus says, well, then you're in a very good place. I can work with that, just like I worked with Levi. So let me ask a couple questions as we close out here. Does, does God's grace... Reorient your, reorient your life or does it de- disorient your life? And again, 
In our culture, it does both. It does both. It's either going to uh, reorient or disorient. So, so I, I think God would call us to position ourselves to receive grace by, by, in humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Here's what, what's true I, uh, of all of us in this room today. You need grace. You need grace. So, so maybe, and it's not just the grace that saves us the first time. That, that might be the case. You might be Levi at, at your tax collector booth. You're miserable inside and you're hearing a voice other than my voice this morning. You're hearing the voice of Jesus that says, come follow me. And, and if you've humbled yourself, you've positioned yourself to receive grace. Praise God. But what about, what if you're Levi on day two? What if you're Matthew on day five or year 10 or year 20? We still need grace. We still need to position ourselves for the grace of God in our lives. We all need grace. It's what we need most. We need grace to persevere in our, in our lives. We need grace, God's particular grace to deal with particular sins in our lives. Right? Like you cannot do it on your own. You need grace. We need grace for how we love our family and our spouses and our neighbors and even our enemies. You need God's grace. We need God's grace to be able to give grace to others. We cannot give what we can have not received. And the good news of the gospel and the good news of this passage this morning and the good news heading into 2024 is Jesus stands ready to give you grace today. Amen? Let me pray for us that we might position ourselves in that way. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you didn't come to give us another law, but you came to give us grace. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray, Lord, that, that if, if they've never received that grace, that they would have their life radically transformed today by the grace through faith in Jesus. Lord, but I pray for every single person here. You know the grace that they desperately need. Lord, I pray that we would learn what it means to humble ourselves because your word tells us that you give grace to the humble and so help us to do that. Father, I pray for grace for our marriages and for our families in 2024. I pray for grace to, to flood into our own lives. And, and as we look into the mirror, may we just see someone covered by your grace and, and give that person grace as well. Lord, I pray for grace for just particular indwelling sins that are represented in this room. I pray that your mercy and grace would meet us there and we'd, we'd have victory by your grace through that. I pray, Lord, that your grace would so fill us that we would overflow grace upon grace, as, as your word tells us. We would overflow uh, in our neighborhood our, 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 and to the nations in 2024. We thank you for your grace, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.